Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Um, I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Um, a friend of mine, um, somebody who lives in London as well. Um, um, she is a blogger and does a lot of other things as well. And yeah, welcome to the show, Jess Malley. Hello. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm really, I'm really pleased to have you on. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while. It's, it's, um, it's always great having new guests on the show as well. I'm always, yeah. I'm always excited to hear to hear people's stories for the first time. So, um, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and you currently live in London, is that right? Yeah, I do. I live in South London uh, in a lovely flat with a lovely housemate who is actually away right now, which is really strange because we've been locked up together for three months and now she's gone. And I'm like, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I live in South London. And where are you from originally? Ha, that's a loaded (laughs) question. (laughs) Um, So I was born and raised in Germany actually. Um, but my dad is African-American. He was a um, US soldier stationed in Germany. And my mom is um, technically German, but she was born in the Czech Republic. And her family moved to, or our family moved to Germany when she was three or four. So I come from a very eclectic um multicultural background yeah yeah so you've got a bit of a lot of places in you yeah really haven't you yeah 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 that's pretty cool here about years ago yeah and you have you been to the states since you i mean since i was saying since you left but i just realized you didn't grow up there did you (laughs) (laughs) no i didn't grow up there but essentially how it works is um you know, when the, those people who are listening who might have a point of reference, I think it's similar for, for the British um, military, but if you are um, U.S. military and you're stationed in um, a, a country, you're basically, you have those military bases, those posts, where um, you pay in dollars and you have a special... American stores and you have uh, you know American schools and libraries and movie theaters and it's like mm-hmm. a little it's like little America um, and once you're in that US like in that military base you are on US soil so US soil applies like there's a military police so even though it's in Germany or wherever once you are on that space on that land it's like you're in America so when I was little um, especially the first sort of formative years of my life, um, my stepdad, who was also military, and a lot of our friends and our community um, were American. So we would, even though I went to German kindergarten and German school, we would be on and off post a lot, and we'd have lots of U.S. friends. So even though when I say I grew up in Germany, I did, technically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then there was a lot of that American influence, especially in the formative years of my life. And then I obviously went to visit family. And when I say family, I mean my brother's dad initially. Mm. Um, when when we were older and they, they were stationed in Germany again. 
And then I just recently actually found my biological dad. So um, that's been wow. quite exciting and interesting. So I just recently found him and have been to visit him twice since I found him in 2018. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's such a yeah. cool story. I love that. <laughs> Um, I haven't actually publicly told that story before, but I wrote about it a little bit on my blog, but um, that yeah. was sort of, it was all still quite fresh and I haven't publicly talked about it since. So there you go. Ask me anything you like. <laughs> that must be an amazing experience when you've not known your real dad and then he comes into your life and you get to meet yeah. him. It was, it was an interesting experience. I think for me, I am... Um, Obviously, growing up without a consistent father figure, because my um, mm. my brother's dad wasn't around consistently, and any other sort of father figure wasn't around consistently, other than my granddad, my um, mom's dad. Um, but that was obviously different, because granddads are different and all of that. Um, so not having a consistent father figure and like navigating all of that throughout your adult life, and knowing that, you know, as we grow older and as we you know I grew up in a very evangelical Christian environment and um Mm. I'm thankful for a lot of that like to be honest because I think when it comes to sort of experiencing the divine as a father that was really important for me um whereas I know some people struggle with that but for me that was really important um So by the time I decided to actually look for my dad, which was in 2018, I had just come back from a trip to New York, um, and I just felt in in myself that I really wanted to connect with my roots. Um, I think it was more about connecting with my roots than it was primarily about finding my dad, if that makes sense, because I was, you know, at that point, I was in my 30s, or am in my 30s, but it was at the beginning of my 30s, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't like I was looking for daddy, you know, um, <clears throat> but I was looking for that connection to my roots. I believe that there is um, something very important about knowing where we're from, knowing who our ancestors were. And yeah, so I, I decided to to look for him, but didn't really know how. Um, do, you want, do you want to hear the story? Do you want to hear the story how I found it? Yeah. Tell the story. I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there we go. First time on uh, the public airwaves. Um, it's it's quite the crazy story, actually. So essentially, I was in New York in 2018, the beginning of the year, uh, visiting some friends. And the whole time I was there, and I felt like that every time I went to visit the States, I just felt really connected to my ancestors. I know that sounds a bit weird, but it just is what it is. Um, And I remember going to, I went to D.C. for a couple of days, and I went to the National Museum for American, African-American History and Culture. And I spent probably like five or six hours in that place. And um, even though I'm, you know, I'm a a student of of the African diaspora and of our story and of our history. So a lot of what I saw there I already knew, but it was just so impactful to see it in like one space and like the way it's all laid out so anyone whoever has the opportunity to go I definitely highly recommend it and it was when I came out of that museum um so entrenched with the presence of my ancestors in the sense that I felt like like now's the time to <clears throat> excuse me to go in and find my dad and just see if I can find him so I came back from that trip came back to London so this is January 2018 
And I was kind of determined. I remember writing in my journal on the way home, I was like, this year I'm going to find my dad. And the funny thing was that I didn't have any new information. Like one of the reasons I'd never found him before was because I didn't have enough information. Like I had a name, I had a date of birth, but, um, you know, it's like trying to find John Smith in the English speaking world. You know, it's like the equivalent to that. Um, you'll be looking for that person for a long time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Needle in a haystack. Um, but I just sensed like in myself that this, this time I was going to find him. So I, um, I kind of started doing like random things. Like I contacted the Samaritans and I, um, started Googling like private investigators. I'm like, maybe I can import, afford hiring a private investigator. Turns out I definitely couldn't. Um, but I was just kind of trying to pursue any avenue, um, that presented itself to me. And then one day, um, this would have been in February. I was preparing for a meeting. I'm part of a performing arts academy for young people um, in South London, uh, which is all about creating access to high quality training in the arts um, to uh, young people who otherwise maybe wouldn't have access to it. I was preparing for that meeting and um, kind of had a bit of time still. So I continued my Google search for private investigators or how to find a lost family member. And um, a friend of mine walked in and she asked me what I was doing. And I kind of shared and said, I'm looking for my dad. And I had only known her and her husband for about a year. They moved over to the UK from the US as well. And her husband started working for the same organization I was working for. And um, so she's like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know anything about your story. Tell me a little bit more. And I said, well, my dad, you know, was US military and was stationed in Germany and I never met him. She goes, oh, that's that's so funny. Like my dad was in the U S military and, and he was stationed in Germany for a while. And I was like, Oh, you know, fun. You know, there's, there's a lot of people whose story that is. So wasn't, wasn't thinking much. Um, and then she goes, so, you know, where, where were you born? Where were you stationed? I said, well, I'm in Nuremberg. And she goes, shut up. That's where my sister was born. So at this point of the conversation, I'm like, this is either the most random coincidence <laughs> I've ever experienced in my life or there's something divine going on here because this is crazy. And mm. so um, she said, well, yeah, my sister was born in Nuremberg in 1987. And I said, holy cow, I was born in Nuremberg in 1987. So at this point, we're both like, Clearly, there's like this is this is too random to be to be a coincidence. So she, I, I said to her, I said, look, because we were about to start a meeting. I said, I know this is completely random and probably means nothing at all, but just on the off chance, could you ask your dad if he ever knew a guy by my dad's name? So I told him my dad's name, and. Um, and she goes, you know what? Yep, I will. And I had one picture of my dad as well that um, I had of when he held me when I was just a few weeks old. So I sent her the picture. I sent her my dad's name. And I kind of forgot about it because I was like, look, there's no way that randomly, 30 years later, two girls sit in an office and their dads knew each other. Like, that's just, that just doesn't happen. Like, that's not real. Mm. So we went on with the meeting, and I had to go on a work trip that same night. And so I, was, I ended up going hungry. I was away. I was doing stuff. And then Sunday night, um, so the next day, Sunday night, I was running a workshop 
and my phone kept ringing, and I was like, who's calling me? Like, I can't answer the phone right now. And, um, and then I saw it was her. And at this point, we weren't that close. Like, we were acquaintances, but we weren't on this sort of level of talking to each other frequently on the phone. So when I saw that she called, like, my heart kind of stopped because I was like, why is she calling me? But I couldn't answer because I was running a workshop. So about an hour later, the moment I finished my workshop, I called her back. And she said to me, she said, are you sitting down? I said, no, I'm not. She said, well, you better sit down. So I sat down, and... Um, she had, in fact, called her dad um, in the States, and she asked him, she said, Dad, did you ever know a name called such and such, um, a guy called such and such? And, she, and he goes, oh, yeah, I know that name. What, what do you know about this man? And she goes, no, Dad, this is serious. Like, did you actually know this guy? Like, let me send you a picture. So she sends him the picture, and he goes, yeah, 100%. Like, I knew this guy. Like, we, we were acquaintances. So here I am, at the beginning of my journey, trying to find my dad, and quote-unquote coincidentally, I have a conversation with a woman who had only just moved to the UK, and her dad knew my dad. Like, how crazy is that? Mm. Like, I was sitting there, and I thought, that is insane. And so to cut a long story short, her dad, because of the work he does, and they had, he had lost touch with my dad, but he, because of the work he does, he had a way of just processing data and, and, and getting, finding my dad on my behalf. And so I sent him everything I knew. Um, the journey to getting to that was, was intense because I had to essentially call social services in Germany and ask for my file. And... When I got my file, um, it turned out that I had a lot more information than I thought I did, and I was not told the whole truth about what what kind of happened when I was a child. So there was this whole process of, you know, as much as there was joy in thinking I might be finding my dad, there was also a lot of grief mm. because, I, um, you know, you kind of find out that certain things that you lived with your entire life maybe weren't true. Um, or weren't entirely true, and you're trying to make sense of uh, why was that information withheld from me? Was it intentional? Like, what was going on? So I was going through that whole process, and then in June, it's actually coming up to, like, the two-year anniversary of all of this. Um, in June 2018, I felt ready. Like, it was shortly after Father's Day in the UK, and I had a PDF sitting in my inbox that my friend's dad had sent me that had a phone number, name, address, and everything um, for my dad. And I felt ready to call him. And so I asked a friend of mine to make the first call because I was really scared to, interestingly, by that point, even though I was like, you know, I was like, this is all about connecting with my ancestors. And even if he doesn't want to be, if he doesn't want to be in contact with me, that's okay. Like, you know, I'm not looking for a father. But by that point, I had gotten so emotionally invested and vulnerable in, in the whole situation that the thought of calling him and him potentially, because I didn't know how he was going to react, him potentially rejecting me on the, on the call felt like I was so scared of that. So I asked a friend of mine to call him instead um, so that 
you know, if he didn't want to speak to me, he would tell my friend that my friend would tell me rather than me hearing my father's voice for the first time and getting rejected. Like, I, was, I knew mentally, and I have my own um, story with, like, I, I live with depression and anxiety, so I've been on that whole journey, and I just knew I wouldn't be able to handle that. So my friend called the number and um, spoke to the person on the phone forever. I thought I was going to die. Like, I was sitting on the other side of the room, and I was like, what are you talking to him about for this long? Like, I just want to know, is it definitely him, and does he want to talk to me? And about 10 minutes later, um, my friend came back and said, it was your dad. I just spoke to your dad, and he really wants to connect with you. He's just still at work. Um, he's going to call you that same evening. And so that same night, I spoke to my dad for the first time in my life. Um, and wow. I know. <laughs> wow. And the, the rest, as they say, is history. Wow. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. Crazy. There's not much to say after that. It's just, <laughs> that's an incredible story. Um, mm. found out I have uh, six brothers and sisters I didn't know I had. Wow. There's nephews, aunties, uncles. And um, was, you know, lucky enough to be part of a community at the time that really rallied around me and actually made it possible for me to go and visit as soon as I did because I had already gone to on a big holiday like that year so I didn't have any money <laughs> to go again but I just had incredible people around me who um, yeah just got money together so I could fly over there like it was incredible like it was unreal 2018 was probably the most amazing and most devastating year all in one because it was all you know wonderful on the one hand but then when I came back I fell into a really um really really deep hole of depression um and I was kind of knocked out not able to go to work for like three months um wow. yeah but it's been a wild ride <laughs> yeah life tends to be like that doesn't it Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Especially at the moment, <laughs> this 2020 has been has been a wild ride, um, for sure. <laughs> I had this ongoing joke with a friend of mine about each month, uh, how long each month actually is lasting. <laughs> you know, and it feels like we like you know we have one really long month, then a short month, then a long month, then a short month, yeah. then a longer month. You know, and it's just, um, it's, it's just, it feels like we've gone through like a two decades or something in this, in this, in six months, you know, it's just so much has happened. Um, it feels like, so, people tell me things that happened in like December or January. And I'm like, that was, that was just, that was just then. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> Like, yeah, we had the bushfires in January. Yeah, do you remember that? Like, he's like... God, that, no, that I, don't, like, I actually didn't remember that. that. Now that you said it, I was like, oh, my God. Somebody said this to me, exactly. Like, it was... it was uh, Wow, did you... Did you, you know, do you, you, you remember the bushfires in January? Like, oh, my God, that was January. I, I feel know. like years ago. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we've had the pandemic, and, and that's still happening. That's still going on. That hasn't yep. stopped, and then obviously, um, 
in the last few weeks we've had um, the murder of George Floyd we've had mm-hmm. several other murders as well racial yeah. racial murders uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement kind of exploding all over the world and protests and um, yeah. yeah and it's um, that's been um, a long ride in itself yeah. um, I mean what what's been your experience of that um, mm-hmm. um gosh I think um overall so so being being a black woman and um you know that that being my lived experience and has has been my lived experience for my whole life I was as I always am when when a black man or a black woman is is killed um I was grieved like when so the this recent I guess wave if, if you want to put it like that started with um Ahmaud Arbery um when he was he was chased down um in the neighborhood by mm. sort of self-proclaimed um neighborhood watch fools I don't know yeah. um and, and we saw that video um and after that, I was, you know, I was heartbroken. And then shortly, so, well, we, it happened at the beginning of the year, but the video surfaced um, recently. And then shortly after that, um, the news about the circumstances around Breonna Taylor's murder yeah. um, came out, who was shot in her home um, by, by police. She was shot eight times and was killed. Um, which that that actually took place in, on the 13th of March, but it only sort of, you know, surfaced um, around the time we found out about the circumstances of Ahmad's death. And then, um, and, and I always kind of make a point when I talk about this to, to connect these dots, because I think it's really important to understand um, yeah. why this time... Because obviously it's not new. We all know, like, there's been, um, you know, the, the list of names is way too long for us to list them. But there's Tamir Rice, there's Michael Brown, there's Philando Castillo, there's, um, you know, Atiana Jefferson, there's Sandra Bland. There's, there, I, the list is, is too long. Um, so it's nothing new, and yet there was something different this time. So I think it's important to understand that there was a, a particular se- sequence of events that led up to this current um, uprising of the movement. So Ahmaud Arbery was shot and murdered. Breonna Taylor was murdered. And then there was this odd and bizarre incident with um, a lady we know is called Amy Cooper in Central Park and Christian Cooper. Do you remember? Um, did you, yes, did you I remember that. that. Yeah, I absolutely remember that, yeah. So... Um, so Christian Cooper is bird watching. Um, he's an African American man bird watching um, in Central Park, and uh, that's that. There's a there's a part of the park where you're supposed to have your dog on a leash, and there's a lady, and she doesn't have a dog on a leash. So Christian asks her to please go ahead and put her dog on a leash, and she gets all offended, and he starts filming her. And thank God he did, because who knows where he would be today if he hadn't. Um, so he starts filming her, and. Uh, apologies if, if people have seen the incident, but I think it's important to, like I said, connect the dots. He starts filming her, and um, and she sort of 
works herself up into this frenzy and she makes a statement um, points at me she says if you don't stop filming me I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell the police that there's an African American man threatening my life and I think for most black people certainly for myself and, and my community when we saw that video there's something there's something that broke in us where we didn't even know there was anything left to be broken because we, you know, we're used to racism, we're used to seeing these things, and we're unfortunately used to seeing um, black bodies killed and violated in the way that we have over the last 400 and plus years. But there was something in hearing a white woman, a supposedly, you know, New Yorker liberal woman, Mm. make this statement of saying I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them an African American man is threatening my life because if you think about it logically if you're actually in a position of danger probably not the first thing you think about is to place a potential perpetrator in terms of their race you know if you're Mm. actually threatened you just go ah someone's threatening me But she premeditated this phone call to the police, and she says two things that are just so significant to understand. She says an African-American man, and she says it's threatening my life. He was not, in fact, threatening her life. We saw that because he filmed it all. All he ever said was, please put your dog on a leash. He did not make any threats whatsoever. He was no danger to her whatsoever. She's telling a blatant lie. So she goes ahead and calls the police and she works herself up in this frenzy and her voice kind of, you know, starts getting all shrieky and she almost like strangles her dog in the process. And I think when we saw that, like I said, something something broke. And um, and for that to be that for that to happen on the same day that later on George Floyd is being murdered by a police officer. Brutally murdered. I mean, the, yeah. I'm not going to explain all the details because it's actually re-triggering, especially for black people who are listening. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, first of all, where have you been? But also, <laughs> secondly, you can actually do your own research. But for those two things to happen on the same day, we suddenly looked at those two things and we went, Amy Cooper was hoping for a George Floyd outcome. Yeah. And that broke something in us. Because if she wasn't, if that wasn't her intention when she called the police and said what she said, she wouldn't have made up it's threatening my life. She wouldn't have pointed out he was an African-American man. She wouldn't have premeditated it. She mm. was a New Yorker. She would have seen what happened to Maude Arbery. She would have known what happened to Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, um, Mike Brown, Alton Sterling, all the names. She would have seen that. She would have known. And yet she chose and premeditated to make that phone call. And I think for many of us in the black community, we saw those two things happen on the same day. And any trust that we may have had left in society and in upholding or aspiring to, assimilating to, or whatever word you want to use, any trust or hope we had for that was gone in an instant. 
And so for me personally, that has manifested or has, has felt like grief and trauma over the last few weeks. Um, there's actually this term um, that I've been talking about a lot uh, called collective trauma. And that's actually a, you know, it's a real thing. Like I, mm. it's, it's not something we're making up. Um, but there's a, there's a really great definition actually, which I might just really quickly read because I think it gives a lot of context. But what we all felt was, as every time things like this happen, we all felt this sense of, you know, this this could be us. This could be, you know, when Brianna Taylor, I, I wrote a post on my blog um, called Let Me Tell You a Story. And when Brianna Taylor's yeah. murder came out, mm. I was sharing an experience I had when I visited my sister in the U.S. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. Yeah, because I, I read that but, recently. And yeah, very powerful. Yeah. And, and I think what what happens when we see these things is our bodies, because trauma lives in our bodies, doesn't it? Yeah. And so when something triggering happens, all the trauma rushes into our body. Every time we experience microaggression, every time we experience um, racial abuse, every time we experience overt or covert racism, every time something unjust happened to us because of the color of our skin, skin. All of that rushes into our body when we see these things. And collective, the definition to collective trauma is collective trauma is an event or a series of events that shatters the experience of safety for a group or groups of people. These events are different from other forms of traumatic events because of their collective nature. That is that these events are a shared experience that alter the narrative and psyche of a group or community. And I think that definition puts it so well, because that is what happened. Over a century, our sense of safety as a black community has been chipped away at. At some points, it was hammered away at, you know, through slavery, segregation, apartheid in South Africa, whatever yeah. else. But then over the last decade, it has still been chipped away at, the sense of safety. And mm. this sequence of events, a few months back now, it... It was the straw that broke the camel's back. And we just realized that actually all these things we thought were possible or even the liberal friends we have we thought were safe, we're now no longer feeling safe because we saw what Amy Cooper does, did. We knew and we saw that she knew exactly what she was doing. And then we saw what the police officer does. We see that Breonna Taylor's murder still haven't been charged. And I think that has just triggered an uprising within us. That some, Someone said that, because when, when George Floyd was killed, he um, and I didn't watch the whole video because I couldn't. Um, I saw enough, even when I see the picture. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't I can't, either. Like, it triggers me even just thinking about it. But he... I'm sorry. He um, called for his mom when when this police officer was, was, you know, squeezing the life out of his body, literally. He called for his mother. And what's so whew, moving and, um, I don't know, like, yeah, just deeply moving and unbelievable is that we now know that his mom was, has actually been gone for a long time. So in, in the moment of his death, he was calling out for his mother who had already passed. 
And there's been this sort of movement of moms and ancestors around the world that have said, like, when he called for his mom, he summoned all the mothers. He summoned all the mothers from past and in the present. And I think that, and, and I heard someone else, I heard a Nigerian lady say, she explained to me that in her tradition, when innocent blood is shed, it rattles the bones of the ancestors. And um, when I heard that, I actually wrote a, a poem about it because it moved me so much. And, and it's this, this idea that it, this, this last death now, and it hasn't been, sadly, in the last few weeks, at the, at the moment that we're talking, there have been further murders of uh, black bodies in America. But um, that, that that has brought the, the, the way I put it in my poem is that our brother's blood has brought the, how do I put it, it's brought the pot of our ancestors' wrath to a boil, like a boil over. Um, and so I think that sense of uprising and upheaval and enough is enough and we're going protesting, we're taking to the streets, it's a, it's a result of, it, it's just been enough. And we've just now seen that the thing that we thought was kind of going to keep us safe, the social contract, has actually been broken. And, and I think that Amy Cooper, this is why it's so important to understand that the Amy Cooper incident in that sequence of events made us see that so clearly because it wasn't a police officer. Amy Cooper attempted murder on Christian Cooper by making that phone call. Luckily, he filmed it. Otherwise, his best outcome would be being in prison now. But that, that just made us realize we're not safe. And so, sorry, I'm going on for so long. I could talk about this forever. But there's a sense of urgency because we just go, we're not, we're not going to carry on like this. Um, and, and it is a global movement because, like I said, collective trauma is, is something that, that can affect us and affects every black person, especially in the diaspora, but even on the African continent. And um and we're just we're just done now. And we're gonna we're gonna fight and we're gonna take our freedom. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Um yeah. And uh yeah, and it's important that white people like me listen to what you said and what other people are saying and and do the work educate yeah. ourselves and you know uh, and I'm talking to white people generally and you know read books listen learn watch documentaries go and protest yeah. if you can support black activists yeah. and black creative people if you can you know it's 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 not it's it's got to it's got to end it's got yeah. to end you know, um, there was a prominent there's a prominent um, football manager in the UK last night interviewed after after the game, and literally he spent two or three minutes talking about this. He was saying, "This isn't just a problem. This isn't just a problem for now. Gestures are not enough. This is 400 years. This is we are responsible. We have to do the work. We have to help change things." Yep. You know, and it was like this is great. A a a, a public figure with a large audience and the large platform yeah. is white is actually saying this to other white people that we yeah. have to do this and that is that was great I thought it was it was just it's yeah. about we need more people saying that kind of thing publicly because um, white people need to do the work 
Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, like you say, it's great that someone... Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I thought I had switched off all my notifications. <laughs> um, Live recording, everyone. <laughs> um, I, I think, like you said, it's, it's important that people with platforms um, talk about this, but also do the work and actually put actions um, to to their, their sentiments and their, and their words. But, you know, especially in football, I think we've seen so much, um, so much racism in that. So it's yeah. very important that, that the leagues and, I mean, I don't know much about soccer, but what I do know is that they, that they actually do the work and that their management and their boards and start reflecting the players on their pitch. Because the reality is there are so many black players um, but when you look at the, you know, the sort of senior level yeah. um, boards and things, that's where we need to see change. And I think I keep saying that to people as well. I said, I'm not asking for you to put a black face somewhere. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about systemic change yeah. where we need to see us on, you know, on boards and at the managerial tables and, and all that kind of stuff. And they just have to, yeah, that, that really has to shift. But it's great that, that he spoke up about it. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's some black footballers who are really speaking up about it as well, which is um, which is really good because obviously they have massive platforms. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And so we need, we need all of that, yeah. yeah. Um, Absolutely. And thank you for talking about that because I know that it must have been painful to talk about as well. Um, it's painful, but I think for me, um, for me, it's part of my vocation. It's part of the work I do. It's part part of the work I did prior to any of this. Like I've written and spoken about these things for a long time. So, you know, while I would say to every white person listening, don't expect your black friends to educate you. You've got to, you know, I go by the motto: educate yourself by yourself. There's a lot of work out there that you can read, incredible books. But then there are a few of us, and there are plenty of us, actually. If you start looking at the, you know, the social media uh, landscape and, and everything that is out there, there are actually enough of us who are willing to educate you. Um, so listen, you know, and take us up on it. But also know that every time we do, it is painful for us, and it's re-traumatizing, and it's re-triggering. I was running a anti-racism workshop yesterday with an organization, uh, organization. And in my introduction, I said, I just, you know, I kind of needed to bring the point home. And I said, asking a black person to talk about oppression and to talk about these experiences and to educate you is like asking a rape victim to give details about their experience and then adding, are you sure your skirt wasn't too short? And so people need to understand when, when they ask black people about these things and when they question and when they add things like, oh, you know, they didn't mean it that way. That wasn't a racist comment. That was, you know, all those kind of things. It's exactly the same thing. Mm. And um, it's important to know that. But then, like I said, there are those of us who are, albeit, you know, painfully so, are willing to, to educate because we, it's part of our vocation and part of our calling to, to bring that change. Yeah, absolutely. And your writing is amazing. I mean, I, I read a lot of it on your on your blog, and yeah, the poetry and, and the blogs, and very moving. And that story 
um, um, that, that you posted recently. Uh, that I would recommend everybody read that because I think it's very, very, very powerful, and it will give you an insight into lived experience. Yeah. Um, and I think I think why people need to read that story because because uh, it certainly impacted me um, mm. and just gave me insights to just you know just the extent of white privilege and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we yeah. don't have we don't have to fear for our lives when somebody knocks on the door you know we don't have to worry that we're going to get arrested for no reason we don't have to you know we, we've never had that so we don't know what that's like uh, and that's a reality yeah. for a lot of black people and yeah um, so read that story, everybody. And uh, where where do people where do people get your work? By the way, where's where's your website? So um, by the time, fingers crossed, this episode airs, you will be able to go to www.jessmally.com. J e s s m a w l y, and on there you will find all of my work. So everything from my writing work, my consulting work, my workshop stuff, how you can get in touch with me, my blog. Uh, I just launched my own podcast, actually, um, a couple weeks ago. So you can listen to that as well. It's called The Third Way Podcast. Um, yes, yes. So yeah, you can head head to the to my website. Um, and then obviously social media. So you can find me on at Jess Malley on Instagram, on at underscore Jess Wright on Twitter. Um, I'm not great at Twitter, but I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I haven't cracked the Twitterverse yet. I'm better than I used to be, but you must yeah. teach me, James. Teach me your ways. I'll see you. I'll see you there often enough. Yeah, I'll give you some <laughs> advice if you want. Yeah. <laughs> um... But thank you for coming on the show and, 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 and telling your story as well. I mean, that was that was an amazing... Still, just blew, blew me away, that story. Um, it's just... Yeah. Uh, and just share, and talking so courageously about, about systemic racism as well, because I think... Yeah. I know it's not easy, like you say, to talk about, these, talk about this. And I'm grateful yeah. that you... I'm grateful for your emotional labour in talking about it. Thank um, you. I thank you for listening. I really appreciate that. Um, you're welcome. You're absolutely welcome. Yeah, and you know you're welcome back on the show anytime. I'm sure there's loads we could talk about. So, amazing. Yes, anytime. Just um, DM me. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And so check out Jess's work. Go and find out and connect with her. And uh, yeah, um, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>